All right, we are back. Joining us now, as we promised on last week's show, is Sacramento attorney Stuart Gardner. Welcome back, Stuart. Thank you, Doug. We're, we were going to talk uh, just for a few minutes about this bizarre case in Connecticut of the serial killer who's been trying for 10 years to speed his own execution. He's yeah. been thwarted by the legal system. Yeah, it's uh, this is a fairly common thing. It's not really that bizarre for a murderer. Who knows he's going to get the death penalty to want to just end it and get it over with. I didn't know that. There actually are more than oh, there yeah. are many cases like this. Oh, oh, this happens not infrequently. This happens not often, but not infrequently. Okay, now my understanding of this case, and I think you just haven't studied it at great length, but, but my understanding here is that, um, that he's hired an attorney to speed his execution, and the attorney was basically clearing the path, greasing the skids for this to take place, and then the judge stepped in and said he could lose his license if, uh, if, if he pursued it. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding exactly. It's pitiful, I think, that an attorney who's supposed to represent a person, if the person's you know, willing, able, and making an intelligent, informed decision, they should be allowed to kill themselves. Um, why not? I mean, especially you go to Oregon, people make knowing decisions all the time to end their lives when they don't have any hope. And I don't see why criminals should be any different. And from what I understand of this case, the judge himself actually intervened and told the lawyer that that could be grounds for disbarment, which I just find to be shocking. But uh, a couple other things about this case that make it very interesting. This attorney has had to fight off the public defender's office, the state bar, and other people. And he's gotten psychiatric evaluation of his client, who seems to be sane, and who just wants to finish his life instead of sitting in a prison for years and years, which can't. It's, it's no fun. I've been in San Quentin. It's not a... This is not a nice place to be, and ending your life when you know you're going to get the death penalty anyway, uh, I don't see anything at all wrong with that. But uh, for some strange reason, the judge decided to intervene, and that's what I found to be very shocking in this case. Uh, judges are supposed to be neutral parties. They're not supposed to intervene. They're not supposed to threaten attorneys with... Uh, tell them that they're going to be disbarred if they don't do certain things. And that's what I found shocking about this case. We should clarify, uh, Stuart, that you were you were in San Quentin in your uh, capacity as a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't staying there for an extended <laughs> time. Uh, well, according to this guy, this uh, U.S. District Judge Robert Chatigny, in a telephone conference with the lawyer, Pauling, told him, what you're doing is terribly, terribly wrong. No matter how well motivated you are, you have a client whose competence is in serious doubt and you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Not, Hello? You, you wonder what the judge based his opinion on. I mean, from what I understand, the attorney had he, he had psychiatric evaluations done of the guy. I might be you know, wrong. We're, we're I didn't to, study it real we, well. But. We did a program some time back on, on psychiatrists meeting the courtroom. We may want to have to revisit that subject. Yeah. But the judge, he, he way overstepped his bounds. And I don't understand what the so great now, harm does, does would it get be. Appealed? What happens next legally? Do you know? Well, uh, first, I think that the attorney withdrew and asked for a continuance so that he could get more evaluation. Oh, so that's good, the first good. thing you back up. I, I, I have a feeling that what this means is more legal proceedings and cha-ching. 
Cha-ching, cha-ching. But this lawyer's trying to do the right thing. He's just trying to represent his client to the best of his ability and get what the client wants. I mean, there's a reason that they're called mouthpieces. You know, if you murder eight people and have remorse later and decide, you know, my life wasn't worth living, living and should be terminated, I mean, aren't you allowed that? Shouldn't you be allowed that? I guess we're in agreement on that. You should be. Yeah, you know, what would you do, though, if you were in Oregon and you were, you know, terminally ill prisoner? <laughs> Could you ask for the death penalty if you were in death row? Well, f- forgive me, but I think it depends, Stuart, on how many lawyers you have. <laughs> okay. Well, you win, Doug. I'm going to go. All right, Stuart, come again. Thank you. That was Stuart Gardner, Sacramento criminal defense lawyer. We will be hearing more from Stuart in the future. This might be a good time to interject the statement that the views expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS the regions of the University of California, or any of the fine people who provide the station with some financial support. Having said that, uh, let's just just dovetail a bit on our previous discussion. Uh, There's apparently going to be a a medical uh, continuing education seminar locally a couple months from now on the issue of Asperger's syndrome and high-functioning autism. Asperger's syndrome is the Five dollar word that psychiatrists and psychologists now tack on to what used to be known as shyness. And I, I just, I have to laugh. I got a, uh, a mailer advertising this, um, this seminar, uh, apparently to interest me in going, but I, it, it failed. It failed miserably in its task, starting with the fact that at 9 a.m., this is the agenda of the program an overview of Asperger's syndrome and high-functioning autism, consisting of A, dsm 4 review, B, differential diagnosis of VIQ more than PIQ, or at least the greater than sign, C, the importance of assessment, medical, emotional education, D, securing services, E, the need for an integrative, comprehensive team and support services, followed by F, new treatment approaches. Now, I must confess, I'm not sure whether these new treatment approaches or this seminar will offer any breakthroughs in the treatment of Asperger's syndrome, but I feel pretty confident about the fact that it will turn out to be a treatment for insomnia. And every so often one of these articles comes up. The most recent one uh, was sent to me from Washington, D.C., Dateline, January 31st. Um, They every so often poll high school students to ask them about the the amendments, particularly the First Amendment, to see uh, what people's um, understanding of what rights we have as citizens. And the results are, are fairly predictable. They asked at the schools whether people should be allowed to express unpopular views. 99% of school principals said yes. 97% of teachers said yes, but only 83% of students did. Three in four students said flag burning is illegal. Of course it's not. About half the students said the government can restrict any indecent material on the internet. And it can't. Anyway, um, it's sort of disturbing when, uh, when you find that, you know, one in three high school students says the First Amendment goes too far in the rights that it guarantees citizens. 
And here's the most horrifying statistic of all. Only half of the students said they thought newspapers should be allowed to publish freely without government approval of stories. All right, and speaking of education, I don't know whether any of you noticed this item. I, I kind of think you should, so we need to bring it to your attention. In Washington, House Majority Leader Tom DeLay uh, said earlier this month that elite colleges and universities that block our nation's military from recruiting their students should be denied federal funds. The House of Representatives then voted to support military recruiters having the same access to college campuses as other prospective employers. DeLay said every year thousands on thousands of business, industries, nonprofit groups, and even other colleges recruit underclassmen to sign up to become investment bankers or computer engineers or environmental lawyers or medical students. And yet, some colleges, principally the elitist and elite colleges, refuse to even allow military recruiters on their campuses. Such policies, DeLay continued, are obnoxious in times of peace, but they are simply intolerable in times of war. And the equal access of our military recruiters to federally funded colleges and universities must be protected. The House of Representatives uh, then voted on a resolution that showed their continued commitment to military preparedness. It urges the executive branch to aggressively challenge any decision impeding or prohibiting Solomon's Law, which grants the Secretary of Defense power to deny federal funding to any college or university that prohibits or prevents ROTC or military recruitment on its campus. The resolution passed on a, by a margin of 327 to 84. I'd like to know uh, what, dear listener, you think of that. Uh, send us an email, info at radioparallax.com, and let us know what you think about uh, having the U.S. Congress vote to ensure that military recruiters will have access to campuses or face, uh, uh, you know, I presumably a cutoff of funds. Another item I just want to mention in passing, they did a study on abstinence-only sex education programs, which are a major plank in President George Bush's education plan. Well, uh, the Texas Department of State Health Services decided to take a look at how that was faring in the state of Texas. And uh, what it showed was 23% of ninth grade girls had sex before receiving abstinence education. After taking the course, the girls in the same group said 29% had now had sex. Boys in the 10th grade showed a more marked increase from 24% to 39% after receiving abstinence education. I think it's pretty clear that's not panning out. I have a pile of items in front of me I just want to mention uh, because these are all stories in progress. Headlines yesterday, Mideast truce in sight. Apparently, uh, Mahmoud Abbas and Ariel Sharon have reached an accord, and the Palestinian and Israeli leaders are taking a big step toward peace in the area by uh, calling off the dogs, as it were, on both sides of the fighting. This is interesting. Ariel Sharon, of course, has a, a, been a hawk, one of the leading hawks in, in Israel for many years. So if he wants to pursue a peace, he has certainly got uh, the credibility uh, on the right wing to proceed in that direction. We certainly hope he does, but we don't know what else to say about this story right now, so we're just going to watch it and maybe maybe have Gil Medavoy come in and talk to us on this show. Gil, uh, Gil is very well informed about uh, what's going on over in Israel, and we recommend his show to you, Crossing Continents, which is on every Saturday afternoon. 
That's right here on KDVS 90.3 FM. You may want to check the schedule, however, because I know that basketball games and sports events could sometimes uh, get in the way of Gil's show. But uh, we're going to try and have him, have him talk to us a bit about this. Now, in Iraq, uh, people were falling all over themselves, congratulating uh, the Bush administration. At least members of the Bush administration seemed to be congratulating themselves on the fact that an election was held in Iraq. But um, the results just seem to be very confusing. Um, the results are that the U.S.-backed Prime Minister Ayad Alawi's coalition is now running third after the Kurd party, Kurdish party, which is running second, and, um, and a coalition involving the Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani. It seems uh, very, uh, very unlikely that Ayad Alawi is going to remain uh, in his position um, in the next government. Much has been made of the fact that uh, women were free to vote in this election, but um, uh, less talked about was the fact that women in the Republic of Iraq enjoyed uh, a lot of freedoms that um, they were not, uh, they have not been accorded in um, countries that are operating under Muslim law. The, uh, the possibility that this will, uh, will take place in, um, in Iraq has uh, increased considerably in the wake of the election, and what this may represent in the long term is a step backwards in the rights of women in Iraq. But this, of course, again, is a matter that is, it is a bit complicated, and uh, we need to give a more sober analysis, which we're not prepared to do today. So let's, um, you know, let's show discretion as the greater part of valor here and, and put that one off as well. I can't remember if we made a uh, passing mention of this on last week's show, but we need to address it a little more at length today. Ernst Mayer, a, a leading evolutionary biologist uh, of the 20th century, uh, passed away at the age of 100 in a retirement home in Massachusetts um, uh, a few weeks back. Ernst Mayer was one of the architects of the modern synthetic theory of evolution. He, along with a few other people who were on the UCD campus back in the 1970s, uh, including Theodosius Dobzhansky, G. Ledyard Stebbins, and some other big names in biology, such as George Gaylord Simpson, pretty much sat out in the 1930s to try and figure out uh, what was going on with species, what was going on with Mendel versus Darwin, and put together uh, an explanation that is one of the cornerstones for modern biology. People were at odds trying to figure out how Mendel and Darwin could be reconciled. Well, these men were able to do it and establish uh, biology really as, as, a, uh, as a more modern science in their doing so. He had a remarkably productive career. Mayer wrote or edited 20 books and wrote more than 600 journal articles. He was an ardent promoter of the academic discipline of evolutionary biology and perhaps its most energetic organizer. He played a critical role in the founding of the Society for the Study of Evolution in 1946 and served as the first editor of its journal, Evolution, still the leading journal in the field. While walking out to my car after the show last week, I noticed a, a placard uh, leaning up against a telephone pole for a discussion of intelligent design here on the UCD campus the day before. I, I, I did, of course, missed this. This sort of thing has been going on with the Creation Institute. Uh, Professor uh, uh, Gish has been arguing that uh, the Bible, of course, is the correct explanation for uh, how we all got here. And, uh, you know, I mean, literally, not, not in the sense of a metaphor. 
And uh, boy, I got to tell you, across the country, what's happening is is scaring me. We keep talking about it on this program because I just think it's it's worth mentioning. New York Times article, February first, by Cornelia Dean uh, notes some of the following. I want I want to quote from this. Dr. John Franzden, a retired zoologist, was at a dinner for teachers in Birmingham, Alabama recently when he met a young woman who had just begun work as a biology teacher in a small school district in the state. Their conversation turned to evolution. She confided that she simply ignored evolution because she knew she'd get in trouble with the principal if word got out that she was teaching it. She told me other teachers were doing the same thing. Fast forwarding ahead in the article. This stuff is happening all over the country. The Christian right has set out to infiltrate, and that's really the only word for it, uh, school boards all across the country to, uh, to fight for their fundamentalist views against evolution. The article notes that Dr. Gerald Wheeler, a physicist who heads the National Science Teachers Association, said many members of his organization, quote, fly under the radar, unquote, of fundamentalists by introducing evolution as controversial which scientifically it is not, or by noting that many people do not accept it, caveats not normally offered for other parts of the science curriculum. Cornelia Dean states correctly that there is no credible scientific challenge to the idea that all living things evolved from common ancestors, that evolution on Earth has been going on for billions of years, and that evolution can be and has been tested and confirmed by methods of science. 2001 survey, National Science Foundation, only 53% of Americans agreed with the statement, quote, human beings as we know them developed from the earlier species of animals, unquote. According to this foundation, polls consistently show that a plurality of Americans believe that God created humans in their present form about 10,000 years ago, and about two-thirds believe that this belief should be taught along with evolution in public schools. These findings set the United States apart from other in fact, all other industrialized nations. In other industrialized countries, Dr. Miller said, 80% or more typically accept evolution. Most of the others say they're not sure, and very few people reject the idea outright. In Japan, something like 96% accept evolution. It's worth talking about. Uh, Miller noted to close the article that uh, because scriptural literalists are moving beyond evolution now, and it's time they did, to challenge the teachings of geology and physics on issues like the age of the Earth and the origin of the universe, uh, this is uh, attracting some, uh, some allies to the field of biology. The fundamentalists have decided that the Big Bang Theory has to be wrong. And there are now a lot of people who are insisting that that be called only a theory without evidence and so on. And so now the physicists are getting mad about it. I don't know. I've never understood this. Darwin may run uh, counter to the teachings of the Bible, but uh, so does Copernicus. And 400 years ago, before we had globes in all of our classrooms, the idea that the earth was round and that the earth orbited the sun could get you burned at the stake. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about the theory of gravity, but we, we teach Newton. The fundamentalists don't seem to have trouble with that. And one of the great surprises in the entire history of science on earth was the fact that there were tiny little organisms out there. Until microscopes were invented, no one had any suspicion that such could be the case. Therefore, when you look in your Bible, you're not going to find any references to disease being caused by microorganisms. That makes it uh, pretty unscriptural. But no one seems willing to toss out modern medicine 
for the sake of, uh, of uh, you know, being uh, biblically correct, at least not yet. Now, I noticed that there's been a huge, a huge increase in number of, you know, was Darwin wrong articles? They seem to be everywhere these days, and the answer is no. No, no, he wasn't. There was a very interesting article. The spin on it was even more interesting, but there's an interesting article about the fact that uh, paleontologists in China found the perfectly preserved remains of a dinosaur inside the belly of a 130 million year old dog-like mammal. Now, people seem very surprised by this. There have been mammals. Uh, mammals, of course, were coexisting at the time of the dinosaurs. We mammals just managed to survive that asteroid impact. The dinosaurs didn't. And, uh, you know, it doesn't seem odd to me that a, a rather large mammal could eat a rather small dinosaur. Yet it's being, uh, people are acting like, oh, my God, this is, this is just unbelievable. Well, no one had found a fossil of it until now, and now they have, and I just don't see what's the least bit surprising about it. It's, it's surprising that you could find well enough preserved remains inside the stomach of the fossil mammal, and that's kind of remarkable. But then, you know, fossils themselves are pretty remarkable. Anyway, they just said, you know, the headline is, nobody thought a mammal could eat a dinosaur. Well, yeah. Evidently, they could. It doesn't surprise me. All right, and in the medical world, we've long known that scarfing down a lot of hamburgers can carry health risks. But a new study out puts those risks in sharp relief. Researchers at the American Cancer Society found that red and processed meats dramatically increase the risk of colorectal cancers. Their study of 150,000 adults found that those who consumed large amounts of red meat, defined as three ounces a day for men, two ounces for women, had a 30 to 40% higher likelihood of developing cancer than people who ate less than an ounce and a half a day. They noted that high consumption of processed meats like bacon and luncheon meats was linked to a 50% increase in cancers of the distal colon. Well, um, you know, this has been talked about in medicine for some time. It's one more study pointing in that direction. We know we just might want to treat red meat as more of a condiment and not, uh, and not be scarfing it down three meals a day. There's no surprise in that. But uh, anyway, colon cancer is a serious issue. I guess the word distal I should explain. Proximal is like something closer to the center of your body, and distal is something more toward the end of your body. Your fingertips are distal on your arm, and your shoulder is proximal on your arm. Uh, distal colon means, you know, more toward, toward the rectum in this particular study. And let us close this segment with a bit of, of good news. Uh, the people at the European Space Agency are continuing to process the data coming back from Titan, and these pictures are looking just stunning as the uh, computers are working on them. And what really amazes me is that they thought they had lost the data related to winds as the probe landed on, on Saturn's moon. And of course, we're, we're just, we're watching this avidly. Well, someone forgot to turn on the experiment that would have measured the winds directly. But as a backup, it had occurred to people that if they took all the listening telescopes, radio telescopes on Earth, and uh, measured with some exactitude uh, the signal coming off the space probe, they could tell by Doppler shifts what the wind speeds were. And by God, they were able to extract uh, that, uh, that data. This is, this is kind of neat. I know that not everyone shares our enthusiasm for, um, for probes of the solar system, but, uh, you know, I guess you're just stuck with it because we really think it's cool. Let's take a short break. 
I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.